0: Listening to Humanize Me, with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I am gonna share a conversation with you today that I had recently with Jonathan Merritt, and it's kind of weird because Jonathan Merritt wrote an article about me a while back that I thought was a really fair article when I first was sort of coming out of the faith stuff. And I've, and I've liked him ever since. And somebody sent me this article who didn't know even know I knew him that was in the New York Times about the the, the loss of spiritual language in everyday conversation. And I read the article and I wrote John Jonathan a note and said like, wow, that's a really good article. Um, would you ever want to talk about it? And he, and he said, yeah, I want to talk about it. So we ended up sort of setting up this, this interview. And I didn't realize he had written a whole book about this subject. But... So, so what it turns out is this is me and Jonathan Merritt having this kind of cool conversation about his article in the New York Times, his book, the nature of spiritual language in our culture right now and all that stuff. Now, having said all that, the book, Jonathan's book, I got two copies of that book from his publisher. And so, the deal this this week is the same as it was two weeks ago, is that if you go to iTunes and put up a review of this show and then send us a screenshot of your review of the show to humanize podcast at gmail.com. You will be entered into this contest. And I got to tell you, only 18 people did it last week, which was awesome for us to have 18 reviews on iTunes. That really helps the show. But like only 18 people did it. We had three copies of the book. So like you had a one in six chance of winning. I'm not even guessing we're going to get 18 people this week for the two copies we've got. So you should definitely do it because you have a good chance of winning. And Jonathan's a really good writer. And I think this is gonna be an interesting book for you to read. It certainly was an interesting conversation. I hope you dig it. Now, one last thing I gotta tell you before we get to the show. And that is that you can find out all sorts of information about the show on our website, Instagram, Facebook. We have all that stuff these days because my my friend Scott is helping us do all that stuff. And you can find out all about that stuff by going to barcampola.org and checking it out. All right, I'll catch you on the other side after you listen to this, which is me and Jonathan Merritt chopping it up. So, okay. So, so here's the thing. Like I just, I thought the, I thought the article was just an article written by like a freelance religion writer. Who's just sort of going like, Hey, here's an observation I have to make about the current climate, you know, based on my own experience and some research I've done. But when I, when I looked up the reviews for the book, it feels like your book is a much more personal, like this is, this is kind of like this larger thought that and, and, and you and you actually t- instead of just pointing out that religious language needs to be rethought, you do a bunch of rethinking of it yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I've always said that um, the best books are to some degree uh, autobiographical. Uh, in other words, that you live the narrative in, in some way. Because I think you want your readers to be not just spectators, but participants. And so you can only invite to the inside if you're if that's where you are, inside the narrative. And that's how it worked out for me. I mean, I didn't set out to write this book. Uh, I lived something, and then I wrote what I had lived. Uh, I moved to New York City. It's far more pluralistic than where I was living in the... Deep South. And I was coming into contact with all kinds of people, people who had different faiths, people who had no faith at all. And, you know, for somebody who was raised Southern Baptist, there was a lot of challenge there because and of course, you know, this is true, Bart, like when you're raised in that kind of setting, you can use words passively. Like you can just say a word like grace and you you sort of it just sort of passes out of your mouth but then if somebody says what do you mean when you say grace you don't you don't have an answer right away you have to think about it so it becomes like you you use words it's like trying to define color or the yeah you know words that we've used so often uh in religious communities but we've never stopped to ask what they mean. And I think you're seeing a lot of people who consider themselves spiritual or religious who use language like that. And it's one of the reasons why people are less comfortable talking about uh, spirituality, I think because they're slowly realizing other people don't know what they mean. And even they oftentimes don't know what they mean.
0: Well, and that was the weird thing for me reading this article is that, you know, you were giving these statistics of the the infrequency with which most Americans have a conversation about spirituality or meaning or God. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, I I have these conversations five times a day. You know, like I'm a university chaplain. Like I I, you know, I'm an ex-Christian who's who now counsels people going through religious transitions. Like I like I this is the the atmosphere I live and breathe. Mm-hmm. and so i was surprised i mean i you know I, I thought like oh i would have thought in this in this era of polarization you know politically and whatnot that that the conversations might not be fun or there might be a lot of conflict but i just assumed everybody's talking mm-hmm. and uh and but the, the person that sent me the article was a was a, another secular humanist and their question was do you think that secular people have the same problem that that Jonathan's talking about in the sense of is nobody really talking about meaning mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sort of ultimate ultimate truth and the the purpose of life? You know, like these kind of larger religious questions. Is is nobody having those conversations, or or, or is it just the Christians that are
1: struggling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the answer your friend picked up on something really uh, astute, I think. I mean, the first, the first thing that I heard, I heard kind of three rounds of feedback. One is I've heard from Christians and Christians say, yeah, as a matter of fact, it is hard. Uh, you know, Christianity is in a really weird place in America right now, because there are like whole sects of it that are like, you've got, uh, this sort of Trumpian, It's almost like we got in a time machine and went back to the 1970s and 80s. This sort of resurgence of the religious right. And there there are a lot of American Christians who are like, Ew, I don't want to be associated with that. This person says they're a Christian and I say I'm a Christian and I don't feel like I'm anything like those people. And, and oh, that's, that, that's
0: like my da- my yeah that's like my dad and all his red letter Christians people who are like mm-hmm. we can't call ourselves evangelical anymore because those evangelical means you're with Trump
1: exactly I, I was I was doing an event I mean I'm talking to you from Tulsa and I was doing an event with pastors here and one pastor it's the question that almost always comes up when I talk to pastors is hey I don't feel like I can call myself evangelical anymore but I align with sort of the thinking of the movement what do I do um there is that kind of crisis happening where there's always been a fracture between the left and the right but now even within the right there's a fracturing happening and I think that's interesting this, so you're you're feeling it I think among Christians but then I've heard from people of other faiths particularly uh, not so much from, for my Buddhist friends, because I think there's a sort of linguistic flexibility within Buddhism, but particularly from my friends who are um, Jewish and my friends who are um, Muslim, they say same thing. We're having the same struggles when it comes to articulating these, these kinds of, of ideas, conversations about the sacredness, the inner life. Uh, et cetera. And then the third ring is, is, uh, people like you, uh, people like, um, hey, you know, our friend Tom Krottenmacher, um, people who are more secular, but, and, and they're, and they're maybe they're atheists, but I wouldn't, but, but they live lives that have a certain sacredness to yeah, it.
0: It's funny. I was, I was, I was reading somebody reviewing your book and they sort of described, uh, used a phrase that I often use. You know, they talk about the nuns being spiritual, but not religious. Uh-huh. And and I always think like, yeah, no, no. Then there's us. That we're, we're religious, but not spiritual. Right. In the sense of we're consumed with meaning and purpose and goodness and love. Um but we don't believe in any kind of supernatural force in the universe right so so we're 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 completely natural we're like religious naturalists and uh i use ton i describe myself as a minister or as an evangelist like i'm a chaplain i have no problem like borrowing from the the vocabulary Uh of more traditional religions um but i know Like the thing is like, I know I have to redefine all those words or I have to define them in the first place. Um, because people think of a minister one way and I have to go like, no, a minister is somebody who actually, you know, very intentionally tries to meet a specific kind of need, like a minister of agriculture or a minister of defense. And like, you know, like I am a, I am a minister because I try to address this, the, 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 the the meaning and purpose needs of young people, um. But, but, but you're, you're hearing from a lot of people like me and what are they saying? Are they saying like, we don't know how to talk about our stuff either?
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And it, and it goes back to this kind of passive use of sacred language. You know, for example, if, if you use a word, like if you use, if, if your, if your language is replete with words like grace and love and faithfulness you naturally assume uh, that the person you're talking to is uh, spiritual, that they're, they're, they're Christian or they're Jewish or they're whatever. And then when you find out that they're atheist, there's kind of a cognitive dissonance. And so I think in, in addition to that, what I find is, is even among people who are non-theists, you're, you're a little bit of a rare breed. And there, there are there are some. I I don't know how many. You you, maybe you could reflect on this. There are some atheists who who don't want any semblance of religiosity, even if it's non-theistic, because they they're like, I came from that. I don't need a chaplain. Etc. And so I think what, yeah, I, I, we don't need, fel- we don't
0: need a, we don't need a community. We right. don't need fellowship. Right. We don't need any songs like, uh, yeah. And, and I always, I always say that those people are throwing out the baby with the bathwater because all that religious, like hardware is that's just human hardware. Like, right you know, marching bands use it. Football teams use it. Armies use it. Like this is the stuff that holds people together and gives them a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives. And and, and sort of you abandon all that stuff at your own peril. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my thing is like the, the thing you want to get rid of is the crazy supernatural narrative that that in a sense, you know, because so many people say, I miss church. You know, I miss the music. I miss the covered suppers. I miss the mission trips. It's that insane narrative that says that, like, I'm deserving of hellfire unless I adopt a certain theology. That, that's what I, I don't want to hate gay people. or mm-hmm. like I, You know, I don't, mm-hmm. I, you know, whatever it might be. And so, I, you know, I found myself as I'm reading you and thinking about you. When you were writing this book, is your primary concern? To make Christianity relevant or or to make it kind let's 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 redefine all the words so that Christianity is a more appealing narrative or or are you just concerned that people aren't talking about meaning in general?
1: Uh, i'm not I don't have any r- real stake in the game when it comes to... Um, making faith palatable or relevant or making the Christian religion um, more acceptable. I do think I would like to make it less destructive, um, less painful for a lot of people, um, less harmful. Uh, And I think that there are ways that language has been misused and abused and people have been hurt unnecessarily. And so what I what I hope we can do is reimagine these words in ways that are more life-giving and uh less soul-sucking. And and so if that if that makes us relevant, you know, I think relevance is often maybe a result rather than a goal. Um, I think that, you know, the Beatles sat a, didn't sit around and say hey let's be relevant they they said let's make good music and the result was they became part of that cultural zeitgeist
0: that's that's true but my, but miley cyrus sits around saying how can I be more relevant? How can I you know, I, no, I, I don't agree. Think she's, but,
1: but I think yeah. if you, I think if we were to get in a time machine and go a hundred years into the future, nobody's going to be writing PhD dissertations on Miley Cyrus, because it'll be now they may be talking about this moment and the, and there are the Britney Spears, cultural and the whatever, phenomenon. but in yeah. terms of, of now these people have marketplace influence, but in terms of influencing at that, that deeper level, what you might call high culture, changing the industry, changing the way we do music, those people who really change their industries, change the world to use a, uh, kind of a cliche are not people who wake up in the morning and go, gosh, I hope I'm relevant today. Uh, they're just trying to do whatever it is they're doing and do it really well. And so that's what yeah. I, I hope to do. What I'm, when
0: you keep using the word we, Mm -hmm. which in in a sense, like, so I, I, on the one hand I hear saying like, I don't have a real stake in trying to popularize Christianity. I just think we need to do this. Like, I I think I may have misread you years ago when we first got to know each other. I thought you, I thought you were like on the outside now. Like I, I thought you were done with considering yourself part of the Christian community. But when I read this article at the end of it, I was like, oh, he's still in.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think of yourself as still in? Yeah, Well, I'm still very much a uh, Christian. Um, I am a different kind of Christian, certainly, than I, I used to be. You know, I used to be kind of a conservative evangelical. Um, my trajectory has not been from the right to the left or from the inside to the outside. As much as it has been from a a, a, po- a closed posture to an open one, and uh, so I'm willing to consider all kinds of uh, different explanations and uh, for various things. So, but I've still stayed very, I guess you'd say very, very Christian. Uh, in, in, in that way. And I, and I feel pretty comfortable about it, but like, you know, I know that there are people, if I took people from my past and they came and entered into my life today, they probably would say, you've lost it. You're, you're doing something else. And, and that's okay too.
0: To bring it back to your, your article and and the book is I'm thinking to myself, I have a bunch of friends who are, I would say as, as non supernaturally oriented as I am. Like they don't live their life expecting that a personal God who is out there will intervene and do anything in their lives, but they're still Christian in the sense of Christianity is the language that they use to describe the natural world in which they live. They're like, it's a rich symbology. They, 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 and and they're like, it's a culture. And they're like, I grew up in this culture. And so, I speak Christian. It's the it's the language I use. But but I don't think they're married to dogmatically married to any any of the doc- I don't think they think of it as literally true. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I'm going like when you say, "I'm open to all sorts of explanations and all sorts of stuff," but I still think of myself as Christian. Is, is Christianity just like your home language?
1: Um, it's both. I mean. I I still believe, um, but in a personal God. Yeah, I still believe in a in a okay. in a personal God. Now, if you're asking me, do I believe that the world was flooded and that God saved people on a boat literally? No, I don't. I don't. I don't believe yeah. that. They,
0: uh, or, or that Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead three days after he was crucified?
1: I do believe, I I do believe in a resurrection. uh, You're holding that one. A true, a true resurrection. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I think that there are, there's kind of a spectrum uh, in terms of my own confidence in certain beliefs. Um, But I would say that it used to be like everything for me was like fighting words. And that's not where I am anymore.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I have this friend guy named Anthony Magna Bosco who like, you know, parenthetically would be such an interesting person for you to journalistically. I just think you would find him interesting. Um, and he leads this movement called street epistemology um, where he engages people on the street in conversations about their most deeply held beliefs. And he's a science guy. He's a he's a secular guy. And I, I I think there is in some like there's an there's an underlying agenda where I think he thinks that if people really think about why they believe what they believe, they will end up reevaluating their foundations and maybe finding better foundations. <laughs> but but he but he posts all these conversations that he has. And what made me think about you, your article is is that The vast majority of the conversation is people will say something spiritual and he will say, what do you mean by that word? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that word? What do you mean by that word? And a lot of times people's whole theologies are built around words and concepts that in the end, they don't know what they mean and they they also don't know why they believe
1: them. You know, I think and, I think one thing that comes to mind from the last few things we've just talked about, I think Christianity for me, uh, religion for me in the past was all about finding the right answers. You know, I mean, yes, I believe in a resurrection. And now I want to think about how can I defend that and argue that and sort of like, uh, debate that. Um and why know, do you believe that? Yeah. yeah. And I and I can tell you what I think if you ask me. But I think I, I see faith more now as a commitment to really good questions. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Or what is it what it, what is meaning? What does it mean to live a life of purpose? What does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to see others as better than myself? Um you know, if you look at Jesus for example in the New Testament, Jesus was asked over three hundred questions, and he answered eighteen of them. Uh, he went on to ask another hundred and twenty-something questions himself. And so, this this notion that that spirituality has really become a, an addiction to answers uh, is something I'm trying to get away from and instead to be obsessed with questions and wrestling. And you can, you can live out that kind of spirituality with people who may disagree with you on the answers because you're wrestling with the same questions.
0: Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about that because I mean, it's like, If, if Brian McLaren were here right now and, and Rob Bell and, and Mike McCarg, and all my sort of liberal Christian friends, you know, progressive Christian friends, they would all be going like, yes, yes. It's about the mystery, treasure the question, all that stuff. And, and, and like poetically that appeals to me, but I go like, when I start to answer that question, I answer it one way. If I think this life is all I have and we humans are on our own and there's no meaning except that which we make for ourselves. Like I go looking for the answer to what makes something good or bad in purely human terms. And if I think there is like a force out there or that the universe was created with a purpose in mind, no matter how mysterious it is, it's such a different thing that like when I think about organizing a community of people to pursue love, Like to figure out what it means to be, you know, proactively loving in this world. I go like, we're either going to ask, we're we're either going to try to answer that question using natural categories or we're going to try to answer it using supernatural categories, even if they're very mysterious. And if we do the supernatural thing, like me and a bunch of other people, like, it's just going to be like, at some points people are going to say things and it's going to be like fingernails on a blackboard. And so I'm like, I want to still show up at the orphanage or at the, you know, at, the, at the environmental cleanup and work side by side with those people because their values are the same. And, but when it comes to actually pursuing the questions, I don't know if it's as easy as you think to, like, to pursue those questions with people who are living in fundamentally a different worldview.
1: Oh, well, what I wouldn't want to uh, say is that it's easy. I think it's, I think it's, (laughs) it's the opposite. I think the easiest way is for everyone to become their own kind of, um, super rational post enlightenment fundamentalist. So we all just focused on, uh, you know, getting to the right answer. Once we get to the right answer, then we squelch our imaginations. So life becomes Not about listening and hearing other people's own wrestlings and strugglings with these questions, but it just becomes about arguing with other people to try to convince them that they're wrong. We're right. And they should believe and behave like we believe. And then we gather together in tribes, which become like boot camps for training people to do the same thing. And then may our tribe increase. That's easy. I could do that all day long. Yeah, I can make a lot of money doing that. What's a lot harder, I think, is getting people together who believe, one person believes in God, one person believes in many gods, one person doesn't believe in God, one person, and you get together and you all say, yeah, but you know what? There are some things here. We have some commonalities here. And what would it look like to sit together? And It would
0: look like a Unitarian Universalist church.
1: Well, there's a difference I would say in terms of what what the way that I see the purpose of church. But you, I do I do think it could be beneficial to create spaces, uh, what I what you might even call sacred spaces, where people of various beliefs would get together and become um, intensely curious about how other people are wrestling with the same the same questions. Like I, I actually you know, think listening to you give a different answer to the same question. It rubs up against me in a way that challenges me and like opens me up to go, huh, something, it makes me, as long as I can get curious with that and who knows, maybe I end up being changing my mind on something to think like you think. So maybe,
0: maybe it's just, a. uh, 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 uh a what comes first thing? Because, like, I look at your survey that you did with Barna Group, and it says six in 10 Americans say they had a spiritual conversation only on rare occasions, once or twice, or several times in the past year. You know, like that was like 50% of people barely ever talk about anything spiritual, or, or you know, which I would consider to like more broadly speaking about ultimate questions of life. Um, a paltry 7% of Americans say they talk about spiritual matters regularly. So I go like, you know what? Before I go to the black diamond slope of 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 trying to talk about spirituality with people who literally believe in magic, from my perspective, or for them, with people who like who who discount the most ultimate reality of the universe, like I sort of go like, I think everybody needs to have conversation, start to learn how to talk about meaning in their own families and in their own tribes and then like maybe the second step is once we've got everybody that's like comfortable talking about meaning and beliefs and love and they they, they can articulate their own feelings about love then maybe we could go to that like interfaith gathering and sort of swap stories but like it, it's sort of like run before you w- or walk before you run mm. Because you know, like I, I, I the truth of the matter is when I go on a college campus, most of the kids like they are illi- they are in uh, I guess you called it religious literacy, they are meaning illiterate. They they don't know how to talk about their own values. They don't know how to talk about their own feelings.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think there are two ways to look at it in terms of of, of formation. You know, I went to a seminary that was Southern Baptist. And it was a confessional seminary, which means we have a way of thinking, a way of believing. And our job here is to train you uh, to think like we think so that you can go out and think like we think among people who don't think the way that we think. And that sort of confessional way of of intellectual formation is one way. Uh, After that, I went to Emory University. That was a contextual seminary. So instead they would get people around a table and say, who here thinks they believe in a traditional view of atonement or whatever? Somebody raise their hand. And they'd say, Tell us what you think. And then they'd say, How would a feminist critique that? How would Bart critique that? How would somebody who's not American? How would somebody who's non-theist critique that? And what I found was is by coming into contact with a lot of these views. I was finally able to synthesize my own views, to come to a higher consciousness of my own views in a way that just being in an an echo chamber of a single view, it does a certain thing. But but I know that my experience in terms of intellectual formation, I found if I only encountered one view, I was narrow-minded. If I only encountered two views, I was jaded. I was a cynic. Who can know? He says one thing, he says another thing. But when I came into kind of a chorus, a symphony of voices speaking into something, I could kind of really sort myself out, find myself. And it wasn't until I did that that I think I became, I really figured out what I believed. I don't know if that maybe is the same for you or not, but I, I found that to be true. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, th- I think, you know, and I think that when you have the experience of losing your supernatural credulity altogether, I was, it's funny. I was talking to my dad literally this morning because I I did a I did a a dialogue with him at a at a little Christian school called Malone University up in uh, northern Ohio, and uh, at breakfast this morning we were talking, and he was saying, you know, it's been seven years since you told me you were no longer a believer. He's like, what has changed for you in that time? And I said, you know, the funny thing is, is that Christianity is one of those ways of thinking. I think all, all kinds of sort of supernaturally oriented worldviews are the kind of thing. They make sense from within. You interpret things in light of what within just more or less sense from within. But I said, the second you step outside of them, it's like it says in 1 Corinthians, like it's foolishness to the unbeliever. And I said, the, the farther I get away from Christianity, the more it looks unhinged to me like atonement uh you know the cross uh penal subs you you know uh, original sin um the trinity like the the, like these things just like they make no like from the outside they make no sense at all um unless and that's why you have to become sort of literate, you have to be trained in, in, in either the old way of thinking of those words, or if I get your book, the new way of thinking of those terms. Um, but, but like y- y- those words are not that, that whole system from the outside is, is, really difficult. And so for me, when I go into an interfaith setting, the longer I'm out of supernatural credulity, like I, 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 this sounds terrible. Like, I'm just being honest with you. Like I don't get much, like I don't pick up much and go like, wow, I can really use that. Like it's, it all feels useless to me because it is all, it's like, it's like I'm using English plugs and they're using, you know, American electrical plugs. Like I can't plug in any of it. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds terrible. Like what I plug into is the way that they get together, the way that they care for their people. Like I get into all the hardware of how do you how do you bring a group of people together around a worldview and around a, a set of common values. I have got thousands of things to learn from those people in that way. But when it comes to like how they actually see the world or how they define good or evil, it's it, it is like. It, it is so foreign to me at this stage of the game. Like you know, whereas I think if I'm a if I'm a Jew and I'm talking to a Muslim or if I'm a a, a a a a Buddhist and I'm talking to a Christian, I I think probably there's maybe a little bit more to there's there's a little bit more room for um that kind the kind of stuff you're talking about where you know you you get sharpened or you get you you get your, your stuff honed by the other
1: belief system. Mm-hmm.
0: Does that make like, am I making any sense to you when I say that it
1: makes total sense? I think, I think where we might differ is when you look at Christianity and say, it just seems crazy or, uh, insane or whatever, um, you would see that maybe as an objective function of just how insane religion is. That when you get outside of it and you look back at it, you realize how dumb it is. Uh, I think one thing I would say is, is oftentimes your part of the answer is exactly what you are saying. The notion of this crossing from the inside to the outside. And actually there's a human, a psychological human tendency when you're in the outside um to caricature the inside of whatever it right, is. I right, mean, right, right. You know, in my own community, the way that people talk about atheists as if sometimes uh they talk about atheists as if they're not smart enough to come in out of the rain. And they can caricature it. And I know when I was a kid, for example, and I was really insulated in that community, I just thought, how dumb are these people? To that They would look around this world and say, oh, it all just happened, or, you know, whatever it is. I don't,
0: Only a I, fool says in his heart there, there is no is God. No God yeah. right.
1: I, that is not where my head's at. You know, there's a thing called out-group homogeneity bias, for example, which is a psychological phenomenon that says when you're a part of an in-group, right, you left the Christian in-group, but you're now a part of a different in-group. What happens is, is you have this, this bias where the outgroup seems homogenous. In other words, you take the dumbest or the worst expressions of that thing, and psychologically, that that it becomes a part of the thing, right? In other words, in other words, you yeah, have no a, no. You've, I get, I, you've got Republicans right. who take who take a, a Democrat saying the dumbest thing in the world, and they go, "You see how dumb Democrats are." But if a dumb Republican says something, they have they're psychologically able to differentiate and say, "Yeah, but I'm not like that person." so they see diversity within their own ranks but there is a, hom- a homogeneity uh, yeah. uh, in our ranks that's out.
0: a bad apple in our rank that's a bad apple in their ranks that's how they are
1: right so yeah there are some there are some crazy insane destructive theologies in christianity and i think uh, as an outsider looking in when you sort psychologically the way that humans naturally do Probably Christianity seems crazy in the same way that I know on the inside. When you're on the the Christian in group, atheists seem crazy uh, to some extent. But the question is, is whether whether we can cross those barriers and tap into the multiple in groups that creates some sort of intellectual empathy.
0: First of all, like yeah, I think that's really true. And I, I, I like when I say like it seems insane, I don't mean that. Christians seem insane. It 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 makes perfect sense for me why, you know, I held those beliefs. I understand how people come to hold those beliefs, and I understand how sensible they are within within the context of that community. So it's not like I don't think people are insane for being Christians, and I don't think that that it, it makes them stupid. And 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 the other thing is like for me, like the kind of Christianity that I'm turned off by like I know the nuances like I know not to like put you and Jerry Falwell Jr. in the same category um you know I I, like when Jerry Falwell Jr. says something I that has nothing to do with you or my dad or you know half a dozen other of my favorite Christians you know what I I guess what I'm saying is is that I think that if you believe in supernatural realities um there that there's a fundamental thing where you might go like I think the Muslims have it wrong, or I think the Buddhists have it wrong, or the or the Hari Krishnas or or the Hindus have it wrong on some level, but like at least they recognize that there's something supernatural going on here, that there's a higher realm, and I think that when you're like it's it's like those are still all of a type compared to somebody who is a pure naturalist. Hmm. And, 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 and I think like that, that's all, you know, I like, it, it's not that I think somebody's stupid. Like if, if you're raised in that community and that's the world you grew up in, but the article, as I was reading it, I thought that what, what I, what I think is one of the great contributions is, is you recognize that when you come to New York city, people don't feel comfortable talking about spirituality. They don't feel comfortable talking about The, the experience of life that is hard to put into words, the sense that you have of transcendence in a moment, or the sense you have of connection to another person or to a whole group of people, like there are all these experiences that are profoundly human that it used in in a religious, you know, in in our religious past, people were very comfortable talking about those, those feelings and experiences that was just part of language. Mm -hmm. And we... And, and I, I think you've really touched on something that says if we can't get, like whether even from a, an entirely secular point of view, I still got to be able to have language to describe the sense of calling I feel to care for the needs of young people who are lost. Um, and, 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 and like, I've got to have language, you know, and I think a lot of people they they, they sort of, they don't feel comfortable saying "I feel called" or "I love" or um, "This is what a what a blessing this is." Like there's a whole set of human experiences that have almost like maybe it's Jerry Falwell and his ilk, like they've they've spoiled all that language for us. And the question is, how do we reteach ourselves how to talk about meaning and purpose and love and care in a way that? we acknowledge that, that it's at the very center of our daily lives. Hmm.
1: I mean, I think one thing that I hope uh, a book like this will do for people who, who are spiritual and religious is that uh, they'll be more considerate, they'll be more intentional, they'll be more thoughtful, and they'll learn, which I think a lot of people who are spiritual in America don't do, They'll learn to seek to understand before seeking to be understood. They will learn to listen more than they speak. And, and that is a, that's going to be tough, I think, for a lot of uh, religious people. To, to When they encounter someone like you, uh, to learn to open their ears rather than always anticipate what you're saying and figure out how they can tell you how you're wrong.
0: I think you're right. It's about listening and all those things, but there's one more element. When I used to teach evangelism, I used to always say, you know, that nobody really wants to know what you believe, but people are really interested in your life. And so if you can learn to talk about your life in 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 meaningful ways, that will open up the door for other people to talk about their lives in meaningful ways. And so instead of saying like, this is what I believe, if you're say, you know, if you say like, for me, praying feels like this, or I had this experience the other week where I was reading a book and I felt like I was getting a message from God a- a- and that people could say, well, what, what did that feel like? Did, I mean, did you hear words and stuff like that? And I, I realized that like, if we can learn to ask good questions of each other about our spiritual lives and sp- like, and especially of our children. Like, what does it feel like to you? Uh, when you hear somebody talk about love, what does that mean to you? I was in a cab once and the cab driver said to me, we were talking about stuff and, and he was asking me why I did what I did. And I tried to explain it to him. I tried to explain it. He said, no, no. I said like, what I'm trying to ask you is like, what's your bottom line? Like, what's the most important thing in the world? You He said, because the most important thing in the world to me is my family. And I drive this cab, not because I care about cabs or transportation, but because it's a way to create space for me to love and be with my family. And that's what matters to me most. And I thought, oh, like we're talking about what's the most important, what's the ground of your whole being. And so I, I think that that's as much as we need to find better definitions for the words that we use, I just think if we learn to ask other people what their definitions are and find creative ways to, instead of saying like, what do you believe or what's your religious conviction to say like, what's your bottom line? Hmm. What's the most important thing in the world to you? What is that thing for which you would sacrifice everything else? I just think we got to learn to ask better questions of each other.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I totally, I totally agree. Yeah.
0: Hey, I know you have to go back to being a a, a famous author in Tulsa, Oklahoma, (laughs) challenging religious, religious hypocrisy wherever you go. Um, But I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about this stuff.
1: Oh, gosh, it is. It's my pleasure, friend. And I'm I'm always uh, happy to sit down and have a conversation with you whenever whenever you think it'd be beneficial. Yeah. Did I miss anything?
0: Like, are you like, yeah, this is great. But like, there was this thing that like, is really important to me, but like you missed it. Did I, am I, did I miss something important?
1: No, I think it was, I think it was fantastic. And I, I like that we were able in some cases to disagree. And then in other cases to find common ground, I thought it had a nice, a nice uh, balance. I thought it was fantastic.
0: Are you just running around writing articles these days? Like you just like Mr. Freelance Journalist who writes lots of articles for, lots, for The Atlantic and for other people?
1: Basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. I just running around writing, speaking, doing what I can do and then figuring out what comes after that.
0: Okay. Hey, listen, this is really fun. I really appreciate the time.
1: Oh yeah, it really, it really was my pleasure. And uh, let me know if I can ever be a help to you. All right, baby. I'll talk to you soon. All right, see you later. You bet. Bye.
0: All right, so that was me and Jonathan Merritt. And I liked that conversation, I think primarily because I like Jonathan Merritt. And he is not where I'm at, not where most of you are at, but he's a thoughtful dude. And uh, and I, I think I always appreciate talking to somebody who's thoughtful about spirituality in American life. Um, and of course, in my case, especially secular spirituality. So that was that. I hope you dug it. I hope you enter that contest by by uh, doing a review on iTunes uh, so that you can get at one of Jonathan's books. Remember, you send that to humanize me podcast at gmail.com. And you know what? You could send other things there, like what you thought of the show, what you think we should do next, a question you've got. We do have the question line that you can call in on. Again, all things humanize me are available to you at barcampola.org. And you should go there. And we'll talk to you soon. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. To leave a question in your own voice to be used in future shows, call the Humanize Me Q line at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media.
1: Hey, you could be larger than life.